John chapter 1 will be our primary text today. Another week, another mass shooting, another week of politicians and pundits trying to explain to us why this has happened. Another week of suggestions that new laws will fix this, or limiting access to guns will fix this. As I prepared this message on Friday, I noticed the headline of CNN.com, which summarizes our culture uh, presently. And here's what it looked like. If you put that up, please. Why did this happen? Okay. Why did this happen? People asking this question, and the narrative or the answers are generally the same. They will assume that man is good, fundamentally good. And so when things like this happen, it must mean that something has gone wrong, and we need to fix our society, or we need to fix our government, or we need to fix the parents that parented these people, or whatever it might be. And the thought is that if we do that, then hatred and murder will disappear from our experience, and we will have finally the utopia that we believe we deserve. But you know, if your story is wrong, then all of your solutions are wrong as well. If you think the problem is that Dorothy isn't in Kansas, then you will miss the actual solution for her, which is to simply wake up, right? If you don't understand the real story, your solutions to the problem will be wrong. We need a right story. Where do we get a right story from? How do we know what's really going on? We believe that the right story is God's story, or the story as God tells us to be true. And we believe that story is found in his revelation to us, which we call the Bible. That in the Bible, God tells us the real story. It is absolutely true, it is absolutely trustworthy, and it provides for us not only the big story, but it provides for us our place in the story. And so what we want to do this December is to tell the story, the big story, of what God has done, is doing, and will do. Ever since Augustine in the 5th century, the basic summary of the story as found in the Bible involves four basic chapters, and they are chapter 1, creation, chapter 2, fall, Chapter 3, Redemption. Chapter 4, Restoration. And some years ago, a guy that I know by the name of Jerry McCorkle took this ancient summary and he put it into a little gospel tract called The Story. And in the tract, it just basically tells that story, creation, what went wrong, the fall, the rescue, and then the restoration. And uh, this little track <clears throat> has been 
highly acclaimed. We've had it in our bookstore for some years now, made it available uh, to people. It's a great way to hand the basic gospel story to somebody. It's done attractively, etc. Well, a year ago, the organization that, that does this track decided to turn that into a video, like a short film. And uh, it's done really, really well. And so what we're going to do here in December is we are going to tell this story and we're going to use this video. They've kindly <clears throat> give us, given us access to um, <clears throat> the formatting. And so we can use it in this way. And our plan is we're going to do this each of the month, each of the weekends leading up to Christmas Eve. And then Christmas Eve at our services to tell the whole thing all at once. Because we have many, many visitors that come, tell the whole story and use it as an opportunity to share about Christmas in the midst of it. And then we want to hand one of these out to everybody as they leave. Okay? So they heard it here and they have it as they take home. And we're hoping God will use December and Christmas and people's interest in that to lead them to, uh, to believe in Jesus or to, in the language of the story, to make God's story their story. And so that's where we're going here in the month of December. We begin today with creation. This weekend is creation. And uh, so we're going to play this aspect of this video, and then I will, of course, give some exposition. So roll the tape. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their heavenly father, and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Now, that tree is going to have a big role in the story, but not today, okay? Not today. We're talking about creation today and how that connects with Christmas, and I wanted to uh, show you how the Apostle John essentially does the same thing. If you read through the Gospels, we have four Gospels of Jesus. Matthew and Luke give the most details about the birth of Jesus. John doesn't give really any detail about the birth of Jesus, but he gives a theology of the birth of Jesus. And he does so by telling the story. And he doesn't begin with Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and all of that. He begins, he goes way back before creation, all the way back to the beginning. Listen as John tells the story. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look ahead to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's Christmas, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John begins his gospel. It sounds somewhat confusing because he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you ask yourself, well, who's the Word, or what's he talking about here? Some of this is cultural, okay? First century, that Word, the title the Word, was a fairly common philosophical idea that people would have maybe heard about. And John takes that, and he applies it to the second person of the Trinity, Now, why is that a good description of the second person of the Trinity in his incarnation? Well, think about what words are. Here I am talking words, right? They're coming out of my brain, we hope, and out of my heart. I'm saying words to you. Or if you write a letter to somebody, you're including words as you write that letter. And those words are an expression of the thoughts and the feelings that you have within you. The Word is the self-expression of God. That incarnate Word is a visible, fleshly expression of who God is and what He is like. Hebrews 1 says the exact representation of His being. He doesn't identify who He is actually talking about until He gets to the end of the introduction where He identifies the Word as being Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ the Son of God, who dwelt in eternity past, who was with God and was God. And there we have a reference to the Trinity, the fact that you can have one God and multiple persons within that Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All of these are introduced here in in John, but we get a glimpse of it here at the beginning. The Word, the expression of God. We see in verse 3 now that the Word has a vital role in creation. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That sentence has two clauses basically saying the same thing, one positive, one negative. The positive is, He made everything. The negative is, nothing was made that He was not making. Both of those are essentially saying the same thing, that this word that dwelt with God in eternity past was the mediating agent, was the creative agent behind everything that we have, everything that we see, all that is not God, as I'm saying it. Okay, eternity past, all there was was God. But now, all of a sudden, through creation, he extends the realm of reality and being, and there is now matter. There is a universe. Why did God create? God created because of love. 
We know from the rest of Scripture that this relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is one of complete satisfaction and overflowing love. They love one another. They did not create out of any sense of need. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need the universe. He was totally happy in eternity past. What, what the universe is, is the overflow of love because it is love's nature to create things. When you're falling in love with somebody, what comes out of that love? Notes and poems and meals and words of expression. And if you get married, that love reveals overflowingly commitment and sometimes creates children. And this is just the nature of love to create things. And the biggest, grandest, most glorious love note ever done is the universe. They must love each other a lot, don't you think? (laughs) If this is just the note of their love and the expanse that we see and the complexities and the symmetries and the singularities and the, all of the uh, diversities that we find in the universe, and all of that is just God saying, I love you, to within the Trinity. What love, what power, what amazing intellect, and all that goes into seeing in this world around us. Here's Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Did you catch that? Through him and for him. There is a purpose behind the universe. A year ago, there was a movie that came out, maybe you saw it, about the life of Stephen Hawking, the great, you know considered like smartest man in the world, something like that, the physicist that, uh, and and the movie, it tells the story about him falling in love with his wife, his debilitating disease that he still lives with. But the other theme that comes out of the movie was the life pursuit, I think still is the life pursuit of Stephen Hawking. He has taken that brilliant mind and all of his mathematical understanding and all of his astrophysical understanding and his, the purpose of his life is to come up with one thing that explains everything. One mathematical formula that explains everything that is in the universe. And so they named the movie The Theory of Everything. The Theory of Everything. The Apostle Paul here answers the life pursuit of Stephen Hawking. What is the singularity? What is the central purpose and theme? Why does all of this exist? It is through him and it is for him. The universe is about Jesus Christ and is reflecting in a physical way the spiritual glories that are his. That's why all this is here. That's why we are here. That's why you are here. Because of Christ. Now how did this creation happen? The Bible tells us descriptively how God created. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here are the very first words of the Bible. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now you might say, that's just a short verse, can we move on? There is so much right here in this one verse that is critical to understanding the story and how God's story trumps 
and distinguishes itself from all of the other narratives that are out there that you hear turning your TV on every single day. First of all, there is a God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see in that a distinguishing in the creation Christian story from secular humanism, for example, which would deny the supernatural, would deny that there is a God, or atheism, which obviously denies that there is a God. Christianity and the Bible come along and say, no, there is a God, and he is the one that created everything. God created. This also distinguishes our faith and the story from the narratives of the Buddhists and the Hinduists who believe that actually the created order is God. This is known as pantheism. They take the beauty of creation and they elevate it too high. They actually deify it and then they worship it. But this says that God created another reality. The reality is not God. God is the creator of the other reality. He transcends the other reality. So those stories start off fundamentally wrong, and they come to wrong conclusions. There are not 300 million gods, as the Hinduists would say. There is one God, and he created the world. So we don't worship the world. We worship the God who created the world. We find out that this God is a personal God. Let us make man. I'll read this in just a moment because the story goes on. I'll go on with the story here. The biblical narrative goes on, describes a period of six days during which God creates everything. And on the sixth day, he does something absolutely unique in all of creation. Here's the account. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, our image, a, a, a slight reference to the Trinity even there. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These verses describe our purpose. Why did God make us? And the text here says that God made us in his image. This distinguishes us from everything else in all of the universe. We are unique. How so? By bearing the image of God, God creates within us a spiritual capacity where now I have a soul and I have a conscience and I have a moral awareness and a moral compass. I ask questions about why am I here and where am I going and what does life mean? And these are things that the dogs and the cats never wonder about. But human beings, no matter where you go on the planet, they're looking up and they're wondering, what is the purpose behind all of this? Or they see a San Bernardino shooting and they ask the question, why did this happen? The galaxies aren't asking that question and the polywogs aren't asking that question and the hippopotamus is not asking the question, but human beings ask that question, why? We're made in the image of God. We are spiritual. The text here says that we're made of the substance of the world. Out of the dust of the earth, God makes us. 
But by giving us his image, he raises the dignity and the inherent worth of every single human life, which is why we care about that little life in the womb, and we care about that aged woman at the nursing home and see that life as being precious as well. Why? Because life is a gift from God. Human life is in the image of God. And that's a different narrative than many narratives that you'll hear just turning on your television, right? But that's the, that's the true story. We're made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. We are temporal. We live in time and space. Our clock is going tick, 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 like this. And some of you are going, yeah, hurried along. Uh, we're temporal, but we're made for eternity. We are made to exist forever. And we will, either in heaven or hell. We have souls that are engineered to know our Creator and to worship Him. Genesis 1.28 describes our purpose on the earth. The text says that we are to subdue the earth and we are to exercise dominion on the earth. Theologians call this the, the cultural mandate, that we have a role in this world that the cheetah and the mosquito, especially the mosquito, does not have. We are given authority, and we are called here, he says, to, first of all, to subdue the earth. Now, how do we subdue the earth? By utilizing these incredible capacities that God built into this planet, so that when you find some root in Brazil, and you find out that that root fixes a disease that the human body has, that is mankind exercising authority and dominion in this world. And so is um, uh, air conditioning, and so is Nassau, and so is um, all medicine and science. And if you're an engineering major at Purdue Cal, you are exercising dominion through math and the understanding of the structures that God has built into this world. And if you like to cook, that is exercising wonderful dominion in this world and landscaping and golfing as well, I would add. <laughs> That's a theology of golfing. But the text also says that we are to have dominion here. We are responsible in this garden for the care of this garden. We are not to exploit the capacities that God has built into this world. I think many of us would do well to have a higher view of a theology of environmentalism, which is why it's important in our little gardens that we live in to create order and to take care of the things that God places under our uh, oversight as caretakers in the garden. Okay, so let's catch our breath now. Okay, we're telling the story. Do you see the wonderful balance here? We are made in the image of God. We are given a cultural mandate we are made to know God, we're made to worship God, we're placed in a garden, as the video said, where there is shalom everywhere, there is peace between Adam and Eve, and peace between Adam and Eve and God, and peace between Adam and Eve and the world around him. You know, they talk about in literature these uh, categories of conflict of man against nature and man against uh, man and man against himself, and that most stories revolve around that conflict. And we look in Genesis 1 and 2, and we find there would have been no good stories to write because everybody's getting along with everybody. Everything is shalom. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. One more key to creation from Genesis is that God himself 
declares over all of this that it is very good. Very good. Here's Genesis 1.9, and God saw that it was good. 1.12, and God saw that it was good. 1.18, and God saw that it was good. 121, and God saw that it was good. Are you getting the idea? We get to 131, God steps back like the painter or the sculptor, and he looks at everything that he has done, not just this earth, but the whole of the universe, and he declares over all of this, he says, this is very good, a declaration by God himself of the inherent, not just worth, but aesthetic value of what I have done. This is all beautiful. It's all good. This is important to understand, to have a good theology of creation. Paul draws on this in 1 Timothy 4.4, and he says, everything that God created is good and not to be rejected. There are storylines out there that want to tell us that this world is bad or pleasure is bad. C.S. Lewis writes to this point when he says, there is no use trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us, a reference to the Lord's Supper. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. God rejoices over his creation. He delights in all that this creation is doing and saying. He loves to see the sunrise. Like God's in heaven going, oh, that, we did it again. That's amazing. Isn't that not beautiful? Look at that. He loves, uh, he loves the smell of the meadow after the rain. Like, oh boy, that is, we real, when we designed all them flowers and all that to kind of let off that smell, wow, that is really fantastic. He delights in all of it. All of it. It's not just neutral, it's not bad, it is good. And there are storylines out there that want to tell us that it's bad. Like there's ancient ones. Paul addresses this often in his letters known as Gnosticism, which said basically that the spiritual aspect is good and the physical is bad. Okay? Or more recently, in uh, some quadrants of fundamental Christ- fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, I guess that's what you'd call it, uh, which ironically begins with the word fun, uh, they would say, they would say that if you are enjoying it, 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 it might be sin, right? If it's really pleasurable, God can't be happy with that. So enjoyment, bad. Pleasure, bad. The human body, Bad. Sexuality, really bad. And to all of this, the real story, God says, it's all really, really, really good. So we don't want to, like the pantheists, make it too high to deify it and to worship it, but we don't want to be like the Gnostics and put it too low and to say, it's all bad. It's no good. Rather, to view it the way that God himself views it, that it is not God, but it is really, really good.
Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, I thought he was going to talk about Christmas. I mean, I saw the sermon title, Creation and Christmas, and I haven't heard the word Christmas yet. Is he ever going to get to that? Ding, 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 here we are right now, okay? Because I suspect that many of us have never connected creation and Christmas. Now, why do I say that? Because only an essentially good creation would allow for the incarnation of the Son of God. And I want to explore that with you right now. Back to John chapter 1, this verse 14, which ought to just jump out at you because it, it, not only is it a, a, uh, a Christmas verse, but it is a wonderful gospel verse here. And the Word became flesh. Walk through that slowly with me. The Word. What do we know about the Word already? He's already said He was with God. He was God. He made everything. This being in eternity past, second person of the Trinity, the Word became, meaning he assumes something that up to this point had not been true in his life. He becomes something that he had not been before. Well, what is that? Next word, flesh. Flesh. The Word became physical. The Word became matter. The Word assumes molecules and atoms and body parts he becomes a human being colossians 2 9 in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily what the 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 majesty of god the immensity of God, all that God is spiritually somehow was taken down into that little baby in Mary's womb, that little bitty human being. You're telling me that all that God is became this big? You might as well get all the oceans of the world into a teacup than to take all that God is and to make him into a little baby. Pastor Steve, please explain how exactly, in some detail, did God do that? I don't know. I don't know. But I do suspect that this is why the angels showed up the night that he was born, saying, glory to God in the highest. If angels can only worship and wonder at what God did in the incarnation, then who are we to think that we could ever begin to understand how God connected, here it is, connected his holiness, his purity, his immensity, how he connected this spiritual being with a human body with chromosomes and all that down in the intricacies of what it means to be a human being right down to the atoms of our body somehow god united all that god is with all the little that we are and by doing that he did not cease to be all that he ever had been but he became what to that point he had never been before human being Absolutely fully God and fully one of us. Now, if the created order, if the human body, if being a human being itself is 
fundamentally bad, evil, then there is no way you take a holy God and unite that with an unholy human body. But that goes back to the story, the theology of creation is that creation itself is very good, which allowed then God to become flesh without ceasing to be God because now he was sin. He wasn't sin. He was the incarnate son of God. So to this point, three creation implications then in this chapter of the story. And again, this is just the beginning. This is like the, you know, First, we're just getting going here. We got some chapters ahead. But as I've said, a good creation allows for incarnation. A good creation allows for incarnation. To imagine this, that when Jesus created the world, as he created the, the, the order and he created human beings, created Adam and Eve, he knew at that point that he was going to come and become one of them, one of us. And to think of Jesus as he made the hands of Adam to think, you know, someday I'm going to have hands. Or as he made the brain of Adam to think, someday I'm going to have a brain. That body, I'm going to, I'm going to dwell in a body just like I'm creating for Adam. Boggles the mind. How does the creator become the very thing that he's created? Right? Like, does, how does Shakespeare become Romeo? How does Spielberg become Indiana Jones? Bach, his music, and how does Van Gogh become, you know, Mona Lisa's husband or something? It just, it's the wrong categories, right? Created, creators don't become created things, and yet that is what Jesus did. And here's the story. We go forward in the story. There's a Mary, a young woman that an angel appears to her and tells her this, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. A 14-year-old girl now, most 14-year-old girls that I know, you know, if, if you suggest that maybe, you know, you're not going to do Christmas this year or something, they're going to freak out and go crazy. Or Imagine hearing this. That's a bad analogy, and I don't want to offend the 14-year-old girls that are in the present in the room right now. I'm just saying that you're a little bit on the excitable side, generally speaking. <laughs> and small things sometimes can become dramatic things to you. That will change when you hit 18. You'll never do it again. But uh, <laughs> Mary does not react as you would expect. She simply asks the most obvious question. You're talking about an elephant in the room, okay? The most obvious question that you could have when you're told that you're going to bear the Son of God and you're not married, and you've never had sex. How can this be, since I am a virgin, is exactly what she asks. And the answer to that that she receives is that the power of God will do this. And that's where we sit back and wonder and go, 
How did God connect the egg of Mary with chromosomes that allowed for Jesus' deity to be also 100% true in the womb? Only God could do something like that. But remember, it's the same God who spoke the universe into existence. And if he can do that, then it's not that far of a stretch to think that he can do the other. He was the, he was the son of God and the son of man. And that mystery is why we worship. That is why we worship. The second thing, implication, is that we look at creation and we, we find that creation perfectly aligns with the yearnings of the human heart. If you ask most people more than anything in your whole life, what do you want? For most people, what we want is for somebody to love us. We want to know that somebody cares for us. We look in the Bible and we find that God intended the universe to talk to us. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. What that verse and others like Genesis or Romans 1 say to us is that this creation that we live in every day, just like this gospel tract, the creation every day is talking to us. Okay? It's saying, so it's telling us the story in a little, little piece of it. It's telling us the story, God's story. You say, well, how can that be? What are you talking about? Well, if you think about uh, the yearnings of the human heart, don't they align pretty much perfectly with what creation is, is, could be saying to us? For example, we want to know that somebody cares for us, somebody loves us. Maybe somebody greater than us loves us. And we look in the world around us, and what do we find? We happen to find in this world around us that uh, there is oxygen everywhere, which we happen to need all the time. We have appetites for food and water, and lo and behold, there's dirt everywhere that produces food, and there is water in most places to satisfy that desire that we have. We want to know that we're safe and secure. Uh, and we find in the world around us provision where we can have shelter and we can be warm and there's fire and many other things that meet our needs absolutely perfectly. And then on top of all of that, we look around and we see beautiful colors and we see amazing sunsets and we see all of these things that create a wonder in our heart they're fantastic. They're so meaningful. Like this morning, I was getting ready for this message this morning, trying to decide what I was going to speak on. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I was going over my notes, and it was dark, and, and uh, I was thinking about some things that are sort of discouraging me right now. And I happened to look up, and this morning, the sunrise this morning, I don't know if you happen to see it, um, but it was just this it was kind of a deep purple and then a light purple. And it's just one of these really majestic sunrises. And there was, I looked at that and I thought to myself, of course, I'm preaching this today. It had to be in my mind as well, right? Like, there's a God 
and he's a God of beauty. And it spoke to me. That sunrise started talking to me. And because we are image bearers, when we have these moments of meaningful pleasure or of aesthetic enjoyment, we in those moments can hear something that the hippopotamus and the mosquito and the cat and the dog, they, they hear nothing, they see nothing, they think nothing. But we do. It's telling us the story that there is a creator, that he cares for us, that we are made for him, designed right down to our DNA, engineered to be worshipers of our God. And of course, creation can say a lot, but it doesn't tell us enough to save us. And that's where the gospel fills this in, and I'll get ahead in the story here, but the gospel is that this creation is fallen, and the reason that there's San Bernardino uh, shootings and all the other things that are going on in the world around us right now is because of sin, and that sin corrupts the world and corrupts our hearts, and now there's no shalom with anybody, God, man, ourselves, nothing. We are in constant conflict, and we're doing violence against each other, and there's hatred, and yet we know in the story from the Bible that God continues to love us. He continues to care for us, and he sends a rescue, and his name is Jesus. The Word who becomes flesh, dwells, amongst us, dwells among us, dies for us, is resurrected on the third day, ascends to the right hand of the throne of God, and in the story of God promises that he is coming back for his people who will live with him forever. And God invites us into his story. By faith, we believe in Jesus, and now we become a part of that God story. But that's the rest of this month, and so I'm getting ahead of myself. But I just wanted to say that in case some of you will not be here again. There is salvation from sin and invitation from God by faith in Jesus Christ. And you can believe today. The last implication here is that creation's goodness is the basis for resurrection and the new earth. Resurrection and the new earth. Have you ever asked yourself, why was Jesus resurrected? Like, couldn't he have died on the cross, gone to heaven, been glorified there, told everybody that believed in him that he'd be saved? I mean, why did God do something with that old body that was in the tomb. And the reason that God raised Jesus from the dead bodily and physically is that God's plan for eternity is for a physical reality. And that includes our bodies. And Jesus' resurrection was a forerunner of all the other resurrections that are to follow. For all that believe in him, God is going to resurrect your body. He doesn't want Satan to win any aspect of who you are, and that includes your body as well. That body one day will be resurrected to glory in an enduring body that will last forever. It will live forever. And not only is it the body that is recreated and redeemed, it is the earth as well. And we find in Revelation that God redeems the entire created order and he sets everything aright. He makes shalom everywhere like it was, maybe even better for Adam and Eve. And that realm is where we will live in physical bodies, aesthetically enjoying the created order forever and ever and ever. 
So what we're talking about here is not just sort of a nice part of the story in the first chapter. It is a whole part of the story in the last chapter. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, actually I can't quote right now, that all of this is prelude and that the last chapter is the best chapter and it goes on forever. It's the end of the last battle, never mind. (laughs) How about I quote something a little more authoritative? Revelation 21 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In the end, guess who else is living on earth? God himself. And we are there with him. Physical, bodies, aesthetic enjoyments, all the things we love in this world, and none of the things that we hate. And we will be with him there, time without end. That is the encouragement and is the hope of the gospel. And I place that before you and my friends Bob and Wendy in the back. And those of you that lost loved ones this year, I say that to you. That is the hope of a physical, bodily resurrection to glory forever. And that's just chapter one, folks. There's good stuff ahead. I hope you don't miss it.